How COVID has led to chaos in the courtroom during the confessed Parkland shooter's trial. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. The defense for the confessed Parkland shooter told the judge that one of their employees had COVID. They asked for a delay or they would pull out. However, jury selection continues. We talked to WLRN's Broward County reporter about how the trial can move forward. Also, Florida lawmakers have created strict abortion laws, but when it comes to women's reproductive rights, red and blue take on different meanings. Finally, basically everything and anything that can go wrong goes wrong in space for the human body. A Miami medical student is interested in a new type of practice, space medicine. All of that today on Sundial after the news. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thank you so much for joining us. COVID in the courtroom has led to chaos in the trial for the confessed Parkland school shooter. This week, defense lawyers representing the confessed shooter asked to withdraw from the case. Yes, withdraw. At that moment, both sides are trying to finalize the jury for the second phase of this capital case. Well, to help us understand what's going on and how it impacts this case going forward, WLRN's Broward County reporter joins us, Gerard Albert III. Gerard, always great to have you. Hey, Lewis. Thanks. All right. Walk me through this. This was on Monday. Uh, There's a few uh, layers here. It's a little confusing. So the defense wanted to walk out. Why? Uh, You're right. There are a lot of layers, and it is very confusing. Um, One of the key lawyers on the defense team Casey Secor, he runs their jury selection. He's out with COVID or was out with COVID. Um, Monday would have been his fifth day on quarantine, which is now the CDC's guideline. If you test negative after your fifth day, you can come back. So the defense team was expecting him to come back Tuesday and they asked for a one day continuance. So to not do jury selection on Monday. The state had agreed to that. The prosecutors agreed, but the judge didn't. Um, She wanted to get things moving. She said she's delayed this so many times already. And so the prosecutor and the judge saw what the defense did as as somewhat strategic, just to keep pushing and pushing until the day was over at 5 p.m. Um, And and that's when the defense uh, asked to withdraw um, because they basically said, Without Casey Secor, without one of our main lawyers, we cannot do as best our job of defending Nicholas Cruz, and that's not right of us. So they they threatened to say basically we're just we're not gonna we're not gonna represent this this person anymore. I I had to look it up because I didn't know defense. I guess public defenders can step away from a case, but what did the judge say about that? Well, she denied their motion uh, to withdraw. Um, it, it was pretty heated. Pretty heated. It was tense. Um, the judge actually had to court order the defense to move forward with jury selection, which is which was the breaking point for the defense. Which is when she said, "Okay, well, you're making me choose between my livelihood, my legal license, or." Uh, giving Nick Cruz my my best defense, and uh, I'm not going to do either. So I'm gonna I'm gonna withdraw from the case. Um, 
like I said, the judge denied that motion and they went into recess for about two hours and uh, came back. And that's when they asked the judge to withdraw herself from the case. All right. So they've asked the judge this. I, I know this has come up before. All right. So why did why did they want this judge removed? So, again, this can be seen as a strategic move by them. But in the court filing, uh, which is called a, a motion to disqualify, uh, here's some language from it. Uh, they, the defense says the defendant reasonably believes that he cannot receive a fair and impartial hearing or trial before this court. The court's comments during the hearing indicate that it explicitly does not believe the defense's teams, re- defense team's representations, even in the face of a vital member being under CDC guidelines and quarantined. Basically saying that we don't think this judge is going to give us a fair trial. Uh, the judge read through this motion and also denied it. And did she say why? Uh, in the court filing, it just says that it is legally insufficient. Um, that would have obviously been a, a bombshell if she removed herself from the case. It would have delayed the case even further. Um, but what it did do for the defense, strategically at least, is uh, after these two arguments were made, after these motions were filed, it was around 2 p.m. in the day and no juries, jurors had gone through. Uh, at that point, the judge said, okay, we're not going to move forward with death penalty questions, which is where Casey Secor, the defense lawyer, would have been essential. Um, we're just going to ask the jurors about hardships and bring them back at another day to ask them about death penalty questions. Mm. Again, I'm talking with WLRN's Broward County reporter Gerard Albert III. He was in the courtroom, has been in the courtroom all week, uh, you know, for the Parkland shooters trial and just that chaos from Monday unfolding, as he's just pointed out to us. Follow his reporting on this on our social media at WLRN Sundial. Uh, you know what, Gerard, you were talking about how the judge had said, look, there have been too many delays. we got to move forward. How often has the issue of COVID come up? Um, at least one other time, and it delayed the trial two weeks, the lead prosecutor, uh, I'm sorry, the lead public defender, Melissa McNeil, uh, had COVID-19 and uh, the court had to be put on pause for two weeks there. So it, it, it it's happened before. Um, and now that Broward County and, and the rest of South Florida is on uh, the high COVID level, it, it, it may happen again. The, the prosecutor, the prosecutor side, um, has not had any illness or um but it could happen i mean do they have have they are they putting protocols in because the numbers are going back up or or no uh not that i've seen there's there's no requirements or anything like that the other thing too is this the defense asked for another delay in jury selection because of the mass shootings in buffalo uh in buffalo new york and uvalde texas what's their argument here Their argument is that Broward County, where the jurors are being picked from, most people uh, know what it is like to live through a a big tragic mass shooting in the area. Basically, they're asking for a delay, a continuance, so that the community and the jurors have time to get past the emotions of the recent shootings so that they can rule on the Nick Nick Cruz trial fairly. Where is the jury selection for this trial right now? Where are we? Uh, 
about in the middle of round two, the the Tuesday and Wednesday have gone a little bit smoother, obviously uh, more smooth than Monday, but we've got about 50 jurors moving to round three. Um, they're looking for 150 to move to round three so that they can get it down to 12 jurors and eight alternates. And they're still hoping to get this trial going by when? <laughs> I, I, I always hate uh, trying to put a date on it, but they're trying by the end of this month. Um, and But that's been pushed back and pushed back. And now the judge, when she talks to the jury, says that, the trial is expected to end in late October. Okay. All right. Well, uh, you know what? You're going to be on it. We'll be on it, and we'll keep reporting it as it's happening. Gerard, thank you so much for the update. Appreciate it. Thank you. Again, he is WLRN's Broward County reporter, Gerard Albert III. Follow his reporting on this, because, again, he's in the courtroom just about every day on our website, WLRN.org. Well, still to come, Florida's paradox, abortion. Why some red districts still want access. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. When it comes to abortion, Florida's a paradox. While the state has passed some of the most restrictive laws in the country, it also has one of the highest rates of abortion. South Florida paints a clear picture of what's happening around the state. The disconnect between how people feel about the issue and what they choose to do about it. A recent Politico magazine article took a deep dive into the attitudes that people have about politics and abortion. Joining me now is Eric Sarkissian. He is a health reporter for Politico Florida. Eric, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Great to have you. Also joining us is Kathy Gilsonen. She's an author and contributing editor at Politico Magazine. Kathy, great to have you. Hi, thanks for having me. Kathy, I want to start with you. Why was South Florida the best place to tell this story? Eric and I were looking for a place that really exemplified the contradictions between a place's politics of abortion and how people actually choose to live their lives. Florida, as you mentioned, has one of the highest rates of abortion in the country, certainly the highest rate among any red state. Republicans control every lever of state government there. Um, Miami-Dade County has the highest number of abortion clinics in the state, that's 14. And then Hialeah, which is a, a Republican enclave in Miami-Dade County, has five abortion clinics uh, by itself. And so this was this was just a really interesting disconnect that we sought to explore. Yeah. Eric, compared to the rest of the country, where do you put Florida? Where does Florida stand when it comes to abortion restrictions? Well, the data that we found from the CDC from 2019 showed that Florida was in among states was number three in terms of in terms of rate of abortions. Um, that what the data did what we did not include because of the states dc actually was like number i believe D, washington the district of columbia was actually number two or something it was it was actually much higher so it's, it's important to point that out um but you know florida among other states is is higher because our population is increasing we've gone up by at least three million in the past 10 years alone um and we're also seeing uh, our our 
our laws are actually um, more lax than neighboring states. We're also seeing an increase of out-of-state visitors who are getting abortions here as well. So we, we just passed some more, more restrictive abortion laws, and yet they're still more lax than a lot of the South. I, I there so there are two laws there there are laws in Alabama and Georgia that would be uh, arguably would be tougher than 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 Florida's pending 15 week ban uh, that Florida uh, Governor Ron DeSantis in April signed a, a, a law that would ban abortions after 15 weeks of gestation um, that would be la- more lax than what other states have proposed but it would still be more it would still be more restrictive than what we have now which is 24 weeks of course all this is is hinging on the, the ruling uh, on uh, on the uh, Mississippi 15-week ban uh, that is, you know, widely believed to uh, be dismantling Roe versus Wade. So, I mean, Eric, you know, again, as you said, Florida being one of the most populous states, probably mm-hmm. no surprise why we see uh, the, the rate of abortion really almost twice that of the national average. But how much of that is Floridians and how much of that is people coming in from other states? Do we know? So what we it was actually about as of 2021, it was about 5,000. I believe it was more than 4,800 people. Um, that is that is off of my memory. One thing that to note that's interesting is that number has actually gone up over the past five or six years. Kathy and I discovered, uh, I think, from like 2017 to the current number, it went from like 2,200 to where it is now at 4,800. Um, and that's that's primarily from Georgia, which is obviously just north of us, and and Alabama. So those are the primary those are the, the primary um, visitors uh, who are seeking abortions here. I don't know if you've seen any correlation anywhere in the country, but I mean, so again, Florida having this high rate of abortion, and yet we've kind of become a bit of a red state. I mean, at least Tallahassee's dominated by Republicans. So can I guess. Can there be a correlation or I guess not? Maybe is Florida really the the one outlier? Well, I think Republican strategists will tell you that that abortion as an issue just isn't something that voters take with them when they go to the polls, especially with the coming midterms. And of course, and then the general right now, people are worried about inflation. They're worried about gas prices. It's a lot of, a lot of red meat, no pun intended, for, for Republicans to, to pounce on versus uh, then talking about abortion. And as you saw in the story, I mean, abortion is just uh, people don't want to hear about abortion restrictions and they don't want them. Um, so it's kind of a puts it in kind of a nebulous area in terms of, you know, gigantic political issues to deal with. Kathy, I mean, what I loved about the story, you focus in on this one community, Hialeah. Uh, residents, largely Republican, Hispanic and Catholic. What were some of the contradictions that you saw? It's, it's an interesting place in part because the abortion clinics there that, that I drove around to, some of which I visited, um, are very integrated into the strip malls, right? There, there's, you know, there's one that sits across a highway underpass from something called the Second Amendment gun shop, which is itself pretty close to a store called Diva Fashions, you know, and, and the abortion clinic itself is a few doors down from a daycare center. Um, and it, it was a really, at least for me, a very visually clear demonstration of the fact that, you know, in the abstract, we have these clear sides and these clear battle lines drawn in terms of abortion politics. And in people's real lives, you know, these things are all sort of mashed up together. 
both in within the same communities, but also within people's own, you know, people themselves, individuals hold seemingly incompatible political views within their own minds, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Eric, earlier this year, Politico published a draft uh, Supreme Court opinion that showed a majority of the justices were in favor of overturning Roe v. Wade, uh, which has prevented states from restricting access to most abortions. If this does become the final ruling, how do you see Florida playing out? How will they respond? I, I, I do think that Florida, the, the Florida legislature will definitely propose a, an all-out ban of abortion one way or another. The question is whether the uh, incoming Republican leadership is is ready to support it this as a story pointed out um they were they cautiously you know both both incoming senate president uh kathleen pasadomo and incoming house speaker paul renner both republicans said were cautiously saying that obviously they they the, the likelihood of seeing an all-out ban in the next couple of years is is high but i think especially speaker renner uh paused and put it to the democracy to decide they were being very careful very careful um, there's definitely a shift when they passed the 15-week ban during this cur- or the last legislative session that ended in March, and it was, we're going to save as many babies as possible, or we're going to do everything. And now it just uh-huh. seems like they're like a posse that's gotten to the edge of a cliff in a Western movie, and they all just kind of stopped at this prospect of an all-out ban. So <laughs> they're kind of like, oh. So they don't, I don't know. They want to do it, but I think the biggest concern is that they want to see what the official ruling takes place. That's their official comment. No one really wants to comment on on the draft ruling. I mean, I guess the caveat here is that the governor, uh, Pasadomo and Renner, are all lawyers, so I think they're they're kind of using hedging their bets on that a bit. But mm-hmm. I mean, uh, we will see one, but a question is whether whether it will pass. Uh, that's that's yet to be seen. All right, you know, and after the draft was published, I mean, there were protests nationally. We saw on both sides, but Kathy, in the reporting. It didn't seem like you encountered that many protesters or demonstrations in some of the places that you went to. Yeah. And I don't know if this was mainly a function of timing. Um, The fact that, you know, I I came out to Hialeah a week or two after the court opinion came out and there were protests. You know, there was there was a bands off our body protest that drew thousands of people um, in, in North Miami, I believe before I came out and, you know, Nikki Freed smoke spoke and a lot of, a lot of people spoke there, but when I was there, you know, it was, it was mostly weekdays. It was business as usual. There weren't, I didn't see any protesters in the, in the parking lots of the, of the clinics that I visited. And then also, you know, I had heard about, there's a protest that happens at, at one particular clinic on Saturday mornings. And then by the time I got there, um, it actually, I don't know if it's a protest. It's more of a prayer vigil, vigil, and and people stand and hand out literature and and information about abortion alternatives, and and pray for people. Um, by the time I got there, they had left, and there were only, you know, Planned Parenthood volunteers in pink shirts, including mm. a dog in a pink shirt. You know, Kathy, um, I was, I'm, I'm curious, Kathy. You know, was this draft the Supreme Court opinion? Uh, or the politics around abortion was that top of mind for the people that you spoke to for the story? Nope, not at all. Um, which was interesting to me, uh, but also, you know, in retrospect, not very surprising. I think a lot of the women I spoke to who either were immediately in this position or have been in this position, they're never doing it 
to make some kind of political statement. Um, I spoke to one woman who had an abortion after 15 weeks due, you know, due to fetal abnormalities. And she said, you know, she wanted this child. And she said, she said something along the lines of this was, I wasn't taking a political stand. I would never have wanted to take a political stand like this. Um, and, you know, I, I remember being in a waiting room of one of these places and asking somebody like, well, what do you think about what do you think about the Roe v. Wade leak? And, and she didn't know what I was talking about. They're just there. You know, again, I think it's very easy for political commentators and politicians and reporters and activists to think about this in terms of the abstracts and, and the fights. But really, this is such such an individual, often excruciating decision. And, you know, one woman I talked to about it outside of an abortion clinic in Hialeah said, listen, it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or Republican if you can't afford a kid. Very, very interesting. Again, I'm talking with Kathy Gilson, and she's an author and contributing editor at Politico magazine. Also, Eric Sarkissian, he's a health reporter for Politico Florida. And we're talking about the abortion paradox in Florida the disconnect between what people believe about abortion and what they choose to do about it. And by the way, you can find a link to their reporting on this, uh, an amazing report. It's on our social media at WLRN Sundial. Eric, so then, I mean, hearing all this, I'm just trying to get a sense of what is the public opinion on abortion in the state of Florida. Florida has always been called purple, though it, it looked a little more red in the last election. Obviously, it's very red in Tallahassee, but just publicly, what's what's the opinion on this issue? Right. Well, it's it's important to note out that the Republicans, in terms of the ratio of voters in the state, the Republicans actually took the majority. I believe they first took it in 2021. So there are more um, R's than D's who are registered voters here in Florida. But the public opinion, based on the polls, of the, actually, the, well, the people I know who put the polls together um, had said that they're... The, it's just people don't want restrictions. They don't want to see abortion restrictions at all. It just doesn't. They're just they're they're opposed to it. They don't want anything to do with it. And it's it's something that you know again the experts we spoke to said that you know Republicans are wise to stay away from it. And Eric, um, what about what about the the public opinion among Hispanics? Does it link to what you see statewide? I, I think I think actually what what the story pointed out with with one study and also what the Pew study points out is that Hispanics are also there's a majority of Hispanics that that support um, abortion abortion rights but not nearly as um, not nearly as much as as you know, as other as other groups um, that is changing uh, especially among younger Hispanics where there are, there are more younger Hispanics that are kind of leading some of the traditional background especially you know I grew up Catholic you know you know with Catholic backgrounds and kind of drifting away from that. Um, and, and becoming, you know, more, more of a supporter of abortion. Kathy, you spoke to a number of different women. One of them was Rita Noda, uh, Hispanic. She grew up mostly Cuban in a Cuban family in Miami-Dade County. Uh, she had an abortion years ago and now considers herself, quote, pro-life and pro-adoption. Her story really paints the complexities of abortion for some people. Tell me a little bit more about that story, though. Yeah, She's, I mean, she's an amazing person in general. She's a very, uh, you know, she volunteers a lot. She like, she, she travels, she travels places that have, that have seen natural disasters to like do spaghetti dinners and things like that. She, she considers herself pro-life, 
but she always says that it's complicated because she also considers herself very pro women's rights and she doesn't believe abortion should be fully illegal um she's she's a musician she has she had an abortion 20 years ago but she also serves as a doula um she leans republican and especially on spiritual values and gun rights and she told me you know that she didn't want the government to take away her guns and this turns into another little cuba but she voted for barack obama she, you know she's she's now preparing she adopted a relative uh with down syndrome and in, in addition to her one biological daughter that she has and she's about to adopt a baby from another relative um and she showed me a picture of this baby on her phone and said you know, look this is a product of not abortion. She's so excited for, for this girl to come. And she, you know, she showed me the rompers and the little shoes and everything. So it's just a really, again, all these things can coexist in one individual. And it's, and it, it she just really encapsulates how complicated this story is. Right. And, and, you know, I mean, the other thing that jumped out at me as I'm reading through the story is that it seemed like most of the women you talked to who had an abortion, you know, they, 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 they lived with that anguish and yet they still believe they did the right thing. Yeah. I only talked to two. I, I, Rita did not say that she, she has, she has changed her mind on the issue, I think, but she did not say that she regretted her own abortion. I did talk to someone who said that she regretted her abortion and she is now, she now does that sidewalk advocacy where she tries to counsel women and find resources for women to to avoid having abortions. Um, everybody else I talked to, no one celebrated it. No one was happy about it, um, but almost no one regretted it. I, I was personally struck by the number of women who had named who had named their children, you know, even and, and this was particularly so for those who had had later term abortions where, where this was a wanted pregnancy, but even, even one woman who had had, you know, who had had an abortion earlier told me she would, she wrote a lot about it in her journal and, and addressed, um, addressed the fetus as, as star. Yeah. Gotcha. It, it, yeah. I apologize. I know I, I, I can hear the rumbles of a dog in the background, uh, you know, obviously getting a little excited there. Um, Eric, um, you know, even given Florida's restrictions on abortion, is, is it a designation for abortions for people coming in from out of state or even are we seeing people from other countries? We are we are seeing um, we are seeing people come from other countries, especially in Caribbean nations where abortion is banned. I believe it's uh, the Dominican Republic and Nicaragua, and uh, Honduras, um, just to name a couple. El Salvador, I believe, as well. So but more so it's folks coming in from na- from from the neighboring states. Um, that are uh, from Alabama, which had uh, t- it had the 24-hour wait period law. Into they enacted the 24-hour wait period law in 2019, which basically, if a woman wants to get an abortion, she has the initial visit, and then she has to come back to the clinic 24 hours later um, if to have the actual mm-hmm. abortion. Now, there's only three abortion clinics in in, uh, in Alabama. That's that's it's, it's easier just to come down to Florida. So after 2019, we started seeing a boost of cases here of abortions here. And I, I mean, I, did you hear from anybody if if the Supreme Court, you know, does remove Roe v. Wade and Florida gets really strict on abortions? Did anybody talk about possibly leaving the country to go find access to abortions? 
I didn't hear anything about, about leaving, leaving the country to find access to abortions, but I think that the, the one thing that we heard during testimony from, from abortion rights groups, such as Planned Parenthood, um, during, test, during, uh, during the legislative committee meetings that led up to the ban, was that uh, um, people would have to, the next closest place to go get an abortion would be, would be North Carolina. If it were the 15-week ban, obviously people would still have up to 15 weeks of pregnancy here, but anything beyond that, you'd have to go to North Carolina. Um, Georgia and, and Alabama both have, I believe, I believe in it. Alabama's pending law would make it a, make it a felony if you if you up, if you conduct an abortion, and then Georgia has a six week ban, so they're much they're much tougher. It is a fascinating story. Also points to the fact again that Florida is a very unique place to say the least. Eric Sarkissian, again, health reporter for Politico Florida. Kathy Gilsonan, she's author and contributing editor for Politico magazine. Both of you, thank you so much. This is a great story. Sharing it again on our social media at WLRN Sundial. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. And I just want to just make a note here that uh, WLRN's healthcare reporter, Veronica Zergovia, is working on a story about abortion, and she's hoping to interview people who've had an abortion in South Florida so that WLRN in turn can help the public better understand more about this. And if this is you or someone you know and you'd like to share your story, you could find a form to answer a few questions that can help you start that process. We link that on our social media at WLRN Sundial, and you can also find it at WLRN.org. We are here to listen. Well, still to come, we're going to meet a young Miami medical student searching for the medicines that will help us when we live in outer space. back to Sundial on WLRN. In outer space, our bodies are going to react very differently than on Earth. And we're talking about aches and pains and illnesses, infections and injuries, etc. Much of the medication we take here on the ground may not work the same at all or at all in weightlessness. Shilpi Ganguly is a student at the University of Miami's Miller School of Medicine, and she's working in a whole new field, space medicine. We spoke with her yesterday about how medicine will work outside of our planet. When you were, is this correct, in elementary school, you had a minor planet named after you? Yes, that is correct. And it's called Ganguly 22706? That's her name. Okay. You got to explain this one to me, please. Yeah, of course. So in elementary school, I was a huge nerd. And um, I love doing science fair projects. Um, highly recommend kids everywhere do that. But um, through my science fair projects, I was selected by the Discovery Channel to compete in their national competition. And during that competition, MIT Lincoln Laboratory recognized me by naming this minor planet after me. By the way, is it something you could see if you have the right telescope? You know, I don't know. Technically, it's in the asteroid belt, but to me, she's a minor planet, and she's in the dictionary of minor planets. Um, I think if you had a big enough telescope, you could probably find her. Do you ever check on it? Oh, so online, the NASA Jet Propulsion Lab has a website where you can go and check where it is in orbit, what she's doing, kind of see where she's at in relation to other planets. So I check on her all the time. Yeah, and you know what? I got to imagine that you're probably also bragging about it. Or maybe that's just me. I would be bragging all the time. 
probably one of the cooler things named after me for sure or something that I can quote unquote say that I own. You know, I have my puppy, my car, and my minor planet. <laughs> All right. I am just <laughs> dying of jealousy right now, for sure. Um, I wanted to ask you about, uh, you know, for many of us, uh, it's the first time, and it's actually the first time I've heard this, space medicine. I, I, I actually never heard of that. And I, I, I'm not going to say I'm a total nerd, but I've always loved space, uh, you know, and, and the idea of going into outer space. But what are we talking about here? When we say space medicine, yeah, how do you define that? Of course. Yeah. So, I mean, I definitely am not surprised that you haven't heard it. It's a very new and up and coming field for sure. Um, but space medicine is basically, if I had to define it, the practice of medicine that directly affects human life in space, whether that's practicing the medicine here on the ground or in space, it is all encompassing. Um, so space medicine is the medicine we need to get human beings up into space and as far beyond as you know engineering can take us what what do we know so far about the common medical issues that we're going to experience in space that would require medicine so the interesting thing is space is a super hostile environment um, microgravity we as humans were designed to live in gravity so being in space every single organ system in our body is unfortunately affected so anywhere from your brain to your muscles and your bones and your heart, everything is negatively impacted. And so every single specialty that we have here on earth is equally as valid, if not more in space. So things happen in space that I didn't even realize happened. So um, bacteria, for example, we get sick here all the time. Space bacteria tends to be even more virulent and even more dangerous. And like, we can't treat them with our normal antibiotics. And that's just some of the few things of many things that happen. So basically everything and anything that can go wrong goes wrong in space for the human body. Does that mean that any of the medicine that we have here on Earth is useless or almost useless in space? Not useless, but it's a good platform to grow our knowledge of what we have and how we use it. So that's what the beauty of space medicine is. All the medications and procedures and protocols that we have here we take to space and we grow and expand on them. Um, and that's what's kind of amazing about space medicine is that everything we do for it is directly directly impacts the earth version of whatever that you know medical field is. What got you interested in this field? So, I mean, I think the minor planet definitely sparked my interest in space. And then as I grew up and got older, medicine really sparked my interest through you know, a variety of things that I did with the science fair world. Both of my parents are physicians. Um, so I'm sure that subconsciously played a role as well. Um, but I never really knew that space and medicine could be a thing together until about three years before I started medical school. I was living in Denver and I actually met somebody who was a candidate for the astronaut program who was also a doctor. And, you know, kind of having a conversation with him, learned that space medicine was a huge and booming field. And during my time in Denver, I ended up working for a company called BioCert Space Technologies doing basically space medicine research projects with the International Space Station. So that's like when I really realized that this is a real thing that people do. And it got me really excited. You recently completed uh, a space medicine rotation with SpaceX. And you're one of the country's first medical students to complete a program like this. You assisted 
from here on Earth with the launch of an all-civilian crew. This was, I believe, last September. Um, what was that like? What, you know, what, what did that entail? Yeah, um, I was one of the first med students. Um, it was it was eye opening. So the whole experience kind of showed me how quickly this whole world is moving um, and how much excitement there is behind it. And just in the few short months that I was there, you know, seeing such a history making mission be successful where we sent, you know, an all civilian crew to space for the first time ever. Um, and seeing now all these other companies coming up from behind wanting to enter the space race, it really brought to the forefront that like my dreams are, you know, might actually truly be a reality and are very, very valid. I think a lot of the things I say still kind of sound science fiction-y, but having been, having worked with SpaceX and done a lot of the work that I did and see those launches, it doesn't feel so science fiction-y anymore. Um, so I think that was the biggest takeaway. Yeah, you know what, I'm because you say eye-opening, and I'm wondering, like, we obviously, as you said, there's this race to get people into space, and not just scientists and, and astronauts, but just even regular folks. Um, but as you said, there are new challenges that we're going to face physically, physiologically up there. So from this experiment, did you see anything that, you know, as a takeaway as to, wait a minute, there's a lot more people need to know before they think that they're going to become Buck Rogers and just head out into space. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, historically, NASA has sent, you know, the best of the best, you know, the physically fittest. And even those people had their own health issues. Sending up, you know, civilians who have actual health histories and, you know, imperfect bodies brings up a whole new host of conversations and questions, you know. How does diabetes work in space? How does a knee replacement function in space? Um, these are things that we hadn't even really talked about because our initial cohort of people that were spending the space are just, you know, healthy people. So the first question was, how do we keep healthy people alive in space? And now the question is slowly turning into how do we keep, you know, maybe not the most perfectly healthy or unhealthy people alive in space, essentially, which, you know, that leads to a million more questions, if that makes sense. Um, so there's a, there's so much more to learn before I can say that, you know, anyone and everyone can go to space and stay healthy, but we're moving in the right direction. You, you haven't been to space yet. Do you want to go? Oh, that's the dream. My dream is to, um, spend maybe six months or a year doing a rotation on the moon or something of the sort. Um, and then you know, come back and spend the rest of my days on Earth. You, but, yeah, and, and I would love to. I'm speaking with Shilpi Ganguly. She is a student at the University of Miami's Miller School of Medicine. We're talking about a field of medicine that you probably hadn't heard of before, space medicine. Yeah, outer space. You can learn more about her story on our social media at WLRN Sundial. I mean, you, you've been to so many places, Antarctica, Mount Kilimanjaro. You, I mean, you've been to some of the highest peaks. You, you've, you're a world traveler. Um, you've been able to practice also, and this is another term I didn't know, wilderness medicine. What are some of the anecdotes that, that have stuck with you from those adventures? And, and help me understand this wilderness medicine too, and how this all ties into what you're doing now with, I guess, space medicine. Yeah, so wilderness medicine, for anyone that doesn't know what wilderness medicine is, is basically the practice of medicine in quote-unquote austere environments, so areas that are low resource or far away from resources. Um, so examples like Antarctica or on the top of a mountain or, 
you know, below the sea, um, places where, you know, you can't run to a doctor. Um, and so if you think about it, what is space? Space is probably the most extreme and austere of environments. So like the most extreme of wildernesses, so to speak. Um, so I think it kind of all ties together and all the lessons that we learn here on earth in the wilderness apply very much for space medicine. So when you're training to go to space, we use these austere environments here um, to kind of repair ourselves. Um, people say that, you know, Antarctica is probably the closest that we can get to the simulation of what it's like to be in such a remote environment like space. Um, so I think that's kind of where it all stems. It stems from like the love of exploration and that's kind of what all ties it together. Do you have a, I wonder if you had like a favorite story from any of your travels that, but also has practicality in life? Yeah. Um, so I love, I'm a big high Alpine mountaineer. Um, I love climbing mountains. I'm trying to work my way through the seven summits slowly, but surely. And, um, and those I are the think, seven highest summits people yes, have climbed. On each, it's the seven highest on each of the world's seven continents. I gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. And so I was on Kilimanjaro. Um, it was summit night. I think we started at like two o'clock in the morning and it was just like climbing up a slab of ice, which is unheard of for, you know, Tanzania. But, you know, you could just see like the little dots, like the headlamps of people ahead of you. And that's all you could really see. And I was like looking ahead and I kept seeing this one headlamp kind of swerve back and forth a little bit. I think we were at like 17,000 feet. Um, and I could slowly see like the lights passing this one lamp. And I was like, hmm, interesting. Um, and I come up and I see this guy, it's a young, fit, 25-year-old male who um, doesn't seem to be doing that great. Seems like a little disoriented, a little, you know, worse for wear, so to speak. Um, and I had asked him if he's okay. I was checking in on him. So altitude can kill anybody like this. Um, you know, you don't really believe it until you see it. And this guy, you know, he tells me he, he runs marathons and he's fit. He's just a little exhausted, just needs some water. Um, we sit with him for a bit and then we decide to keep climbing. You know, in the 20 minutes that we maybe climbed 500 feet, I watched this guy go from, you know, being able to make sentences to slurring his words to stumbling to basically passing out, um, which to me, I mean, he basically was suffering from high altitude cerebral edema and was basically dying in front of us and nothing was really happening. Nobody was really saying anything. And, um, you know, being able to convince him that he needed to descend, he needed to stop was a battle and a half. Um, but I think like the whole, t and we eventually did, we eventually convinced him that he needed to go down or he would die because of how fast his, you know, situation was progressing. But I think the big takeaway from that is that no matter who you are, you have to respect the wilderness and like, you can't let hubris win because the wilderness will kill you. Um, I think, we forget that sometimes, um, you know, these environments that I want to work in are very hostile and very dangerous and sometimes they might win. And so it's like knowing when to stop and when to take a step back is really important, you know, for anyone that wants to go out into the wild. Yeah. Um, no, that's, oh, that's an amazing story. And it reminded me of a, I had a conversation, you know, with, with a, a space expert who said, and I think this goes back to, you know, the idea of, of traveling in space that, everything out there is trying in space is trying to kill you. So it's, yeah, if, if, literally. If, if you're struggling on earth, space is going to be another world. Um, during the pandemic, I mean, I'd imagine that it, it had to be tough because, you know, for a traveler like you, you know, everybody's stuck uh, at home. But um, during that time though, you started an online 
lecture series, you were talking about topics like space medicine and surf medicine. I have to ask you about that. Um, yeah. And the talks are, are given by world authorities on these topics, and, and they're free and open to everyone. What was, tell me a little bit about that project. And, and yeah, you have to explain surf medicine now to me. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, during the pandemic, um, obviously, I and the rest of us were all forced inside. So my source of therapy, which is exploration, was definitely taken away from me. Um, and my whole medical education was appended. Um, and so kind of as a response to both of those things, I started, which, you know, I didn't really know it would turn into something so big, um, a lecture series where I featured very interesting physicians who take their careers in medicine and do alternative things with them, like, you know, surf medicine, um, dive medicine, space medicine, et cetera. And it started off just, you know, for my peers and myself to have like an outlet, you know, to hear their stories and anecdotes and keep us inspired in healthcare and kind of like a virtual escape, so to speak. Um, and as I was doing this, I saw the numbers on my Zoom. At first it was like 50, then it was 60, then it was 100, 150. And I noticed that I'd had more and more people from kind of all over the country start coming to my talks. And then soon it was kind of all over the world. And um, I kind of realized that maybe I was filling a niche that I didn't know existed and needed to be filled. And so I leaned into it and it eventually turned into, I, I created um, an organization called the Global Organization for Wilderness Medicine Education or GOMI for short. And we basically focus on providing open access, free medical education in the spheres of wilderness and emergency medicine um, as a way to kind of give people equitable access to maybe this, these types of medicine that aren't necessarily the most accessible and have pretty high barriers to entry that I think are so cool. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the story of how GOMI came to be. Surf medicine. I'm learning new things here because I didn't know that was a thing either. So when you go surfing, there's a lot of inherent hazards associated with it. And there's a lot of these big surf um, competitions, I guess you would call them around the world. And they usually have like a medical director for each of these competitions. And so there's a whole world of medicine kind of devoted to the appropriate care for people that are involved in this sport um, and the type of injuries that they might experience and things like that. So there's, it's a very dedicated field to surfers and the medical care that they require. All right, look, when I surfed in college, if I got knocked over, I just I had a friend who had to pull me out <laughs> and just get me back to the beach. <laughs> Luckily, it didn't happen yeah. too often. But what kind of feedback did you get from the series? So the feedback that I've gotten is overwhelmingly positive, which is kind of why I created this organization. And that a lot of the students kind of felt the same way that I did. So I had students reach out and say, that they felt really trapped and depressed during the pandemic and like attending these series is like the lectures was oh, escape for them the way I felt. I've had students from around the world reach out to me, say that they don't have access to education like this where they're located. And this is the only way that they've ever been able to experience speakers and topics like this. I've had students reach out and say this is the first time that they've had leadership opportunities like this that they haven't had access to. Um, I've had high school students come and tell me that they now want to pursue medicine because of my lecture series, um, you know, so on and so forth. So even if those were just the only five people that have touched my lecture series, it seems to me that I've made some sort of positive impact in people's lives. All right. So you said earlier that you'd love to go into space and you talked about the moon, but, uh, you know, what, what if they said to you, listen, you know what? We, we, we got a group of people we're sending to Mars 
and we want you to be part of that group and do your research. But knowing it, it takes almost you know anywhere from nine to twelve months to get there. So that's almost two years of just trip, taking the trip, and you'll be there maybe two or three years. So you're talking about five, six years of your life at least, maybe more. Would you do it? You know, I probably would if you think about it. I mean, it's very analogous to medical training here on earth that um, I've been an undergrad for four years, two years of a master's, four years in med school. I'll be in six years of training for residency. What's another six years? You know, (laughs) you learn very quickly to um, enjoy the journey, not so much the destination when you're in the career um, that is healthcare. (laughs) And that is Shipley Ganguly, a student at the University of Miami's Miller School of Medicine. Learn more about her work on space medicine and her free lecture series on wilderness medicine. It's on our social media at WLRN Sundial. Also, uh, we posted up there, you know, she has a planet named after her. And we found the uh, NASA website where you can actually take a look at uh, her minor planet that's named after her and where it's at and if you're really that uh, that uh, uh, much of a, an explorer, you can get your telescope out. Maybe you can find it. But congratulations to her on having that. I am so jealous. Can we have a sundial planet? And we'll name all the moons after me and the producers, you know, and everybody else. Anyway, again, learn more about uh, the work that she's doing. Again, on our website, WLRN.org. Well, that's our program for this Wednesday, June 8th, 2022. Coming up tomorrow on the show... It is Wildlife Thursday, and we're going to look at a species that many of us probably think about when we think South Florida living, but few of us have actually seen the flamingo. That's coming up tomorrow on the show. Don't forget, by the way, we have a book for this month for the Sundial Book Club. We are reading the Pulitzer Prize winning book, Cuba, an American History by Ada Ferrer. It explores the island's history from its indigenous population to its relationship to the U.S. and how all of that has culminated into the Cuban identity. Again, it is called Cuban American History. Find it on our Facebook page. Just look up Sundial Book Club. It is free to join, by the way, if you're not a member. Just ask to join. We'll welcome you in. Let us know what you think of the book. If you've got questions for the author, you can post them there. Or, of course, you can also tell us what you're reading or what books you think we should you know, add to the Sundial Book Club. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe. Take care of each other. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. WLRN Public Media.